Please turn your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation 21, as we continue to make our way through this final cycle, seventh cycle in Revelation, this glorious picture of the church triumphant, the church fully and finally sanctified. It's a wonderful picture, and it's hard to believe of this. Probably going to finish this chapter tonight, and then next week we'll continue to look into chapter 22. If you were with us last week, the focus was on verses 9 through 17, as we talked about really the glory and the security of God's people in the new creation. This week we'll focus mainly on 15 all the way to 27, and we'll really focus on God dwelling with his people in holiness. So even though we'll focus from 15 on, I still want to read the whole passage just to give us the context. Because, like I said, this whole vision is just incredible. And I don't want us to lose sight of that. So we will cover verses 9 through 27 as we read God's word here. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. 21.9 Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates on the north three gates on the south three gates and on the west three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he had the measuring rod with him, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh Jacknith, and the twelfth Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon, To shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are truly amazed as we realize as sinners redeemed by Christ, we have the confidence to enter into the holy places, not by our own merit, but by the blood of Jesus, to draw near to you with a true heart and full assurance of faith. But Lord, we also acknowledge that every time we draw near to you in corporate worship, it makes us long even more for the day that we see in this passage. Lord, we long for the day where we will see our Savior face to face and we will dwell with you in perfect holiness and joy forever. Father, give us patience and endurance as we wait for that great day. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm sure you would agree that these last few chapters in Revelation are some of the most glorious passages in the whole Bible. I mean, it's here in these passages that we get more details about heaven than we get anywhere else in Scripture. We also get this wonderful conclusion to every storyline of the Bible. All those promises we get from the very beginning in Genesis, all the types and shadows we see through the Old Testament, and even all the images of Christ, the preview of his work, they all come together in perfect fulfillment at the end of days in this new creation. And really, it's here in this passage where we finally get to see the outcome of our salvation. We finally get just even a small taste of what we will look like in glory when we are conformed completely to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet, even though this is one of the most glorious passages in Scripture, if you stop and think about it for a little while, you probably also realize this is a really really strange passage as well. I bet most of us didn't even notice it because we're used to reading this passage. But can you see how casually the treasures of our world are used in the new creation? I mean, materials like gold and pearls and precious jewels, probably most of those we don't even realize what they are. Materials that people in our world sometimes obsess over or even do very wicked things to get. How are they used in the new creation? They're building materials. And not just building materials for, you know, really important things. They're building materials for seemingly trivial objects. I mean, look, we have pearls that are larger than we can possibly imagine. Anything in our world doesn't even come close. And what are they turned into? Gates. Gates, by the way, that are never shut. Verse 25. Not even used. Beautiful pearl gates, they're never used. Jasper, more brilliant than anything we've seen in this world, is turned into walls. Let me remind you, by the way, there's no enemies for those walls to keep out. They serve no purpose. The gates are open anyway, so if there were enemies, they would just come right in. Why would this material be made into these glorious walls? And even gold is all over this city. Gold more pure than anything else 
we can find in our world. And what is the gold used for? Pavement. Does it seem strange to any of you? That materials that we treasure, that we see as so precious in our world, are trampled on in the next? Now, yes, this is symbolic, right? So it's not going to be exactly like this, but it's still shocking symbolism. It's still really strange symbolism. What is it all communicating? What is the Lord trying to teach us? Well, I believe God is trying to show us here that the treasures, the things we value so much in this world, like precious stones, like gold, even, I think, more so like relationships and accomplishments, the things that we hold so dear, won't even compare to the real treasure of the new creation. And what exactly is the great treasure of the new heavens and earth? It's God himself. God himself. He is the greatest treasure in heaven. He is what we long for. He is what we get at the end of days. And more specifically in this text, I believe that the greatest treasure in the new creation is God. But it's really God dwelling with his people in perfect holiness. That's the picture we get in this passage. God dwelling with his people in perfect and eternal holiness. Like I said before, if you were with us last week, I gave you a sentence to try to summarize this, almost this whole chapter. And so this is the very end of the sentence. Last week I said, in the new creation, God will dwell with his people in three ways. In glory and security, that was last week, and this week in holiness, in perfection. And that's what we see in this passage. And there's really, I'm going to draw out two points tonight that show us this holy dwelling place and people. So the first one is a holy temple, a holy dwelling place. We see that in verses 15 to 21. And second, it's the holy inhabitants that dwell in this temple. And we see that from 22 to verse 27. So first, let's look at the holy temple in verses 15 and on. And really, there are three images, hopefully familiar to you because we covered some of these last week, but three images that really reveal that this city, this bride, is also a holy temple in the Lord. First is in verse 15. And the one who spoke with me, that's the angel from the vision, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Now, if you remember last week, I said that measuring in the Bible is often a symbol of security because God is measuring and marking really the things that are his, the things he's protecting. That's absolutely true. But there is also, in another place in Scripture, an angel that measures the final city of God. I believe this is a reference all the way back to the book of Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel, actually. And we can't read all those chapters. It's actually Ezekiel 40 to 48. Massive vision at the end of Ezekiel. And I encourage you, go read those later. It's a great section of scripture that really is a lot like this vision. Now, in those chapters, Ezekiel gets a vision of the end of days. He gets a vision of the final city of God, the new Jerusalem. And the angel even takes Ezekiel up onto a high mountain so that he can see the city. I hope that sounds familiar. That's exactly like what happens to John here, isn't it? And when Ezekiel looks down on the city of God in chapter 40, what he sees is not just a bustling city. He sees a temple. 
In fact, he watches for three chapters as the angel with that rod goes around and measures every part of the temple. And I do mean every part. It's kind of ridiculous when you see it. He measures the walls, the gates, the inner, the outer court, down to the rings themselves in the temple, holding up those tarps, the tables where the showbread sit. He measures it all. And what they're trying to communicate in that vision is that, okay, everything is here in the temple. Everything's accounted for and everything's ready for Ezekiel 43. What happens in Ezekiel 43? The glory of the Lord fills the temple. And when that happens, Ezekiel realizes this temple is like nothing his people have ever seen. It's more glorious than any temple that's ever been and more glorious than any temple that ever will be. This is the last temple, the most glorious temple of all. And the conclusion to Ezekiel's vision, how he sums up what the glory of this city is, listen to what he says at the very end of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48, 35. He says, the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. You see, that's the essence of what the temple meant to God's people. The temple has meant a lot of things, but really when you boil it down, it's really about the presence of God with his people. Now there's one sense where we can say, yes, God is everywhere present, right? He's everywhere present with his whole being. He is omnipresent. The Bible does teach that. But in the temple and the tabernacle before, that was a unique and special dwelling place of God. The place where God chose to manifest his presence in a very unique way so his people would see that he's with them. With the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day, God is showing his people that I am with you, just like in the city. We see this all over the Bible. This, the temple and the tabernacle is where God would commune and even speak with his people. From the very beginning, Exodus 25, listen to what this says. God says, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, that's in the Holy of Holies, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God meets with, communes with, and even speaks with his own people in the tabernacle. The temple and the tabernacle were also the place where God's covenant promises were really realized, were really played out or lived out in some very unique ways, especially the promise that we're really hearing a lot about in Genesis, the promise given to Abraham. If you remember, that's how John summarized what's happening in the new creation. Look at verse 3 at the very beginning of this chapter. Verse 3, when we talked about just the summary of the new creation, listen to what John says this new creation is about. 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man. God is dwelling with his people. And what does that mean? He will dwell with them and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't that the Abrahamic covenant? Isn't that the picture of the promise that God gave to Abraham and that was repeated time and time again throughout Israel's history and even on to the New Testament that God will be with us as our God? What's really incredible to me is that Ezekiel, even though they're separated by centuries, 
in this vision, they're looking at the same temple. They're both looking ahead to the new creation, to this glorious temple at the end of time, which all other temples were merely just a model of. Think of that. The glorious temple in Solomon's day didn't even compare to the glory of this temple. It was just a shadow of the greatness of this final temple. Because this final temple, it's not just in the city of God. It's not just located in this final new creation city. No, the city itself is the temple. The whole city is filled with the glory of God. It's all holy. It's all consecrated, set apart for worship. Why is that? Because God is there. God dwells in this city. This is his final home where he will dwell with his people forever. And all these glorious covenant promises we see are fulfilled completely in the new creation. That's just one image, by the way. There's two more. So the next image of this holy temple comes in verse 16. And that's the shape, the shape of this temple. Look at verse 16 with me. The city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width, and listen, and height are equal. Now, it's interesting because there are squares in the Old Testament, a couple different squares. But this is a cube, isn't it? Length, width, and height, all the same. Do you know there's only one other cube in all of Scripture? I couldn't believe it, actually. I researched a lot this week just to see if that was true because I almost doubted it was true. There's only one other cube in the whole Bible. You know where it is? Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the temple and earlier in the tabernacle. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, we get dimensions of Solomon's temple, the holy place. It says, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. A perfect square. And it was even overlaid in gold. And what do we find in this new creation? Gold everywhere. God's telling us something. This new creation, this new city is the Holy of Holies. And remember what this place represented. This was the place where only the high priest could go. And only that high priest on one day per year. And only then, even after, he offered sacrifices for himself. He atoned for his own sins before he can go and atone for the sins of the people. This is what was necessary for God to be their God and for them to be his people. They needed a high priest to do this, to draw near to God on their behalf. Until one day, a different kind of priest showed up. A priest that John says tabernacled among us as the true and final dwelling place of God. Hebrews 9.11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation. That means he's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem, the tabernacle in the wilderness. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see what's happening here? This cubic holy of holies we see in Solomon's temple and in the tabernacle, that was just a model again of the true holy of holies in heaven. 
And Christ didn't enter into the earthly holy of holies. He went into the very throne room of God himself and offered his life as a propitiation, a sacrifice atoning for our sins, satisfying God's wrath. The perfect sacrifice, once and for all, to free his people from sin. That's why Hebrews 10, 14 says, By a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, this is how incredible the new creation is. The new creation, the good news of the new creation isn't just that the veil was torn. The veil was torn, right? In the temple, in the tabernacle, it was torn and there was access to God. And that would be glorious in one massive way. But the new creation, we don't have access to the earthly holy of holies. The heavenly holy of holies where Christ dwells comes down to us. It comes down as this new creation. The entire city is the Holy of Holies. There's no more outer court. There's no more court of the Gentiles where you and I would belong. There's no need for Levitical priests and for blood sacrifices. No, the price has been paid in full. We have access now as children of God, redeemed in Christ. And we will be perfect on that day. We could never draw near to God because of our imperfection, our sin. We always had to do it through a priest. We still do it through a priest, but that priest has perfected us on that last day. Fully saved, fully sanctified, dwelling in the presence of God. Just glorious, isn't it? But John gives us one more image, one more image of this glorious temple. Look at verse 19 as we see these precious stones. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And you can see it there in the next few verses. We have a list of all these different jewels. I won't read it again. I'll probably mispronounce another one like I did earlier a little bit. These jewels, I bet most of us, when we look at this, we recognize some. But I bet almost none of us could pick them out. Onyx and what, what does that even look like? Most of us don't even have any clue. But these jewels were very familiar to God's people in the Old Testament because they showed up in incredibly important places. First, they show up in the Garden of Eden. There's two passages that list these, this list of stones, these 12 stones, Genesis 2.12 and then Ezekiel 28.13. You can go look those up later, but those lists together, those are the 12 stones we see here. And let's not forget what we learned about the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. The Garden of Eden was the first temple because God dwelled with his people in perfect harmony. He communed with Adam and Eve, spoke with them. They walked with God in the coolness of the day. Adam and Eve were even commanded to work the garden and to keep or to guard the garden. He did a lousy job, which is why we had the fall. But those same commands are given to the priests in Leviticus for how they're supposed to work the temple, work and keep the temple. See, what's happening here is that the tabernacle and the temple, they were actually modeled after the Garden of Eden. All the remnants of the images we get from the Garden of Eden, they show up in the tabernacle and temple. That's why Solomon, in 1 Kings 5 and 7, he also puts these 12 stones in his temple. Because he wants the people to see this temple is the new Eden. It's the new place to commune with God. To draw near to God through a mediator that's a high priest. 
And the last place we see these 12 stones, and probably the first place that came to most of our minds, is the breastplate of the high priest. If you remember, he had a square breastplate that was all overlaid in gold, and these 12 stones were on that breastplate, over his heart. And by the way, each stone, on each stone was written the name of one of the tribes. So what would happen is he would wear this and draw near to God in the Holy of Holies, symbolically bringing the whole nation of Israel into the presence of God with him. So these 12 stones symbolize God's people drawing near to him in perfect holiness. These 12 stones are a reminder of Eden, of the tabernacle, of the temple. And what do we see in the new creation? Those 12 stones are there, all 12 of them. And the reason for that is not because the new creation is trying to be like the tabernacle or the temple. It's because the tabernacle, the temple, the garden, those were all pointing forward to the new creation. The final temple, the glory of the bride, the new Jerusalem. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? These symbols are gloriously showing us that this is God's final holy temple. You know what? God's not done yet. John still has another section here. And there's a subtle shift when we get to verse 22 that I want you to notice. Up to this point in this passage, John has only talked about the outside of the temple. He's only referred to the appearance of the temple, what it looks like and the characteristics of the outside. But starting in verse 22, he looks to the inside of the temple, the inside of the city. And if we would expect that this is a true temple, what we should see when you look into it are holy tools of worship. We'd see the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, the table for showbread, right? That's what we should expect. Here's the amazing thing. We do see tools for worship, instruments for worship. But the instruments for worship are the people of God. They are the objects that now bring God worship in the final day. So we see holy people, holy inhabitants dwelling with God. The first inhabitant is God himself. Look at verse 22 with me. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. No temple. This is a holy city. It has to be a temple, right? Well, there is a temple. Look, for because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is amazing. There's no location where God's presence is known. He's known everywhere in the city now. His glory, his presence fills all of the new creation. So there's not one particular holy place in the city, holy location to commune with God and to atone for our sins. No, atonement is finished. We now commune with God face to face. You know, we get a taste of this in the new covenant, don't we? In many ways. Christ comes now as the true final temple of God. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again. He tabernacles with us, John 1. John 2 and and Colossians 1, he calls himself a temple. And Paul says his people, the church, is also being built into a holy temple in Christ, which is a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 22. And Jesus even tells the woman at the well in John 4, verse 21, he says, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
You realize what that means? In the new covenant age, we don't have to have a religious pilgrimage to get to the Holy Land. To fix our sin problem, to commune with God, to dwell with God. And we commune with God through the Spirit of God. Anywhere in the world, we can do that in a cave. We can do that in a cathedral. But we especially see the presence of God when we're with his temple, which is the church. We draw near to God together as we gather. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We draw near to God in worship. And God has even given us sacraments, like communion, where God draws near to us. So when we gather in corporate worship in this new covenant age, we are drawing near to God like his people before him, getting a greater taste of that. But here's the thing. Even now, as glorious as our worship is and our communion with God is, it's not perfect. And the reason it's not perfect is because we are not perfect yet. We still worship God in a fallen world. I'm sure if you're anything like me, and while we're gathering for corporate worship, even here now, you're fighting distraction. We might be fighting division. We might be fighting all kinds of sins in this world because this is the world we live in. We're not perfect. We are being sanctified. But one day we will be sanctified completely. We will be made holy. We will worship God without any hindrance from sin. And that day will be glorious because we will be perfectly holy. We see a picture of that in verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. That probably sounds really strange to us. You're telling me there's no sun in the new creation or even weirder, Jesus is the sun? We can't look at Jesus like we can't look at the sun? Is that what's going on here? Well, again, I don't think this is literal. It would be really strange in a passage of all of symbols for this to be literal. But I do think it's a lot like what we saw in verse 1 of this chapter. Remember weeks ago I said in verse 1 when it said the sea is no more? It doesn't necessarily mean there might not be a sea in the new creation. But that is a symbol of a world without sin without chaos, without the vulnerability that the sea provided for the people of God for generations. So this now again is a symbol, it's a picture really of the greatness of the glory of Christ in the new creation. If you think about it, there's few things less glorious in our world than the sun and the moon. God says in Genesis 1.16, God made the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. We set our time and our days by the sun and the moon, don't we? The sun has power to make things grow, to give us heat, to burn us, some of us more than others. The sun has so much power. We can't even look at it straight away. It was even an object of worship. It was so powerful. For many ancient civilizations, like the the nation of Egypt, the sun god Ra, they worshipped the sun because they thought it was so glorious. Now, kids, I bet you actually have a taste of how glorious and powerful the sun is. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but have you ever taken a flashlight or a glow stick? And maybe that glow stick or flashlight in your room looked really bright, right? The light's off, it looked really bright. Or at night, you can go outside and shine the flashlight around, and you can see everything. But you take that flashlight or that glow stick outside in the middle of the day, what happens? Nothing. 
It's almost as if the flashlight isn't even on. The glow stick isn't glowing at all because no light that we produce even comes close to the brightness of the sun. See, in a way, this is a lot like what's happening here. This picture, God is telling us in the new creation, not even the glory of the sun right now will compare to the glory of Christ. If there is a sun in the new creation, it'll look like a flashlight compared to the glory of Christ. That little picture we get in the transfiguration of his brightness and glory shining through, that will be completely unfettered in the new creation. He will be beautiful and holy and glorious, more glorious than anything, even the sun in our world. God is not the only inhabitant in this holy city. God's people also are there. Look at verse 24. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This is a wonderful promise here, that the Great Commission will be complete one day. Because right now, many nations walk just merely under the light of the sun. But one day, one day, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will walk in the glory of God. People live now, as it says in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun by their own rules. But one day they will walk by God's rules. They will bring the glory of God into the city. That doesn't mean they're going to bring material blessings in. Or their own skills and all these creative things they do. No, what they're bringing is themselves. Themselves as living sacrifices. Offering their lives to God in worship. That's the glory of God they're bringing in. Really, I think it's a fulfillment of Isaiah. Chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and listen to the house of God. That's the tabernacle. That's the temple. The house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. They come in and they glorify God as living sacrifices, as they offer their lives in worship and obedience to this God. What a blessing this is for us, isn't this? I think especially for this service in many ways. We pray for our missionaries every Sunday morning, you know, but we pray for their extended needs, and we'll do that again tonight. But what a blessing it is for us to know that God hears those prayers. God will answer those prayers. He may not even answer them through our own missionaries. Our missionaries might even be a stepping stone to whoever comes after them, but here's the gloriously good news. We know the people groups we pray for, there will be people worshiping at the throne of God from those groups one day. Take great comfort in that, that your prayers are not in vain, that the work of our missionaries is not in vain, that all your support for them is not in vain. God promises it'll be done. God promises they'll dwell with God in glory. Verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Now, this, again, is a picture, a symbol of the holiness of the people of God. No night means there's no more hiding, no more deception. You know, people say that all bad things happen at night. It's pretty true in a lot of ways. Just ask a police officer, and they work the night shift. It's pretty terrible. But there will be no more night, no more deception, because in the new creation, all God's people will be holy. 
Everything will be brought into the light. The glory of God will shine and reveal everything. And they will be holy before him. Verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This again is a wonderful promise. There are no more enemies for God's people. The threat from outside the city is done. But this is really glorious too because the threat from within the walls is also gone. Because everyone who's there belongs there. They are the elect. There's no more wolves in sheep clothing. No more need for church discipline because everyone in the city has had their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life before time began. They belong there. They've been saved and sanctified by our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means nothing, nothing will interrupt or interfere with the relationship God will have with his people for all of eternity. Brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful picture of our heavenly home. And I'm sure this is a great comfort. But in some ways, it probably makes it even a little harder as well, doesn't it? Because we see this and we say, I want to be there, but I'm not home yet. But God graciously gives us this vision for days when we grow weary. When we're tempted to run to Babylon, to run to the lies of this world, and to think that heaven won't be worth it. And God shows us this. says, if you persevere to the end by, in faith, not persevere in our own strength, persevere by the power of the Spirit, remembering that it's he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. God will finish what he started. And we hold on to Christ by the grace that God provides us, then we will stand before God in glory and security and holiness one day. Let's pray that that day would come quickly. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious picture. In so many ways, Lord, we can't even do it justice. This is just such a small picture of what we will one day see. I pray, Lord, that it's just enough, that your spirit would implant these images into our hearts, that they would motivate us to persevere, to trust you, to know that all the fighting, all the battle with sin, all the struggle and the sanctification that happens in our lives, it's all worth it because it's producing in us a glory that is greater than anything else in this world. Lord, help us to trust you and preserve us to the end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.